and welcome along to ED's Net Zero Navigators podcast, our spin-off podcast series spotlighting the growing need for businesses to align their strategies with climate science by setting net zero emissions goals and supporting strategies. I'm ED's senior reporter, Sarah George, and I'm going to be presenting this episode today, so a very warm welcome to you. We've been running this series of podcasts since shortly after the UK set its net zero target in law for 2050 last year. Since that moment, more and more businesses and organisations in the public sector have been attempting to get ahead of the curve, strengthening their carbon and energy strategies and pledging to reach net zero well before the deadline. In this series of podcasts, we speak with the trendsetters and trailblazers that have set these targets to get insight onto their development and implementation. So each of these episodes features one in-depth interview with a business that has committed to a net zero strategy. And to mark net zero November 2020, our special month of themed content, we have been running a new episode of this series every week. In the last episode, I spoke with Dentsu International's Chief Sustainability Officer, Anna Lungley. Dentsu recently announced a net zero target for 2030, underpinned by a science-based target to reduce absolute emissions by almost half. And Anna provided a behind-the-scenes look at the company's work to date and its plans for the near future. For this episode and the last podcast of Net Zero November, I dialed the US for a conversation with Iberostar's Global Sustainability Office Director, Megan Morikawa. Iberostar is one of the largest hotel groups in Spain, and after setting new long-term goals centred around ocean conservation last year, it recently committed to become carbon neutral within a decade. Megan is a wealth of insight on the intersections between climate, nature and business. She's qualified as a biologist and has worked for Iberostar for several years, overseeing not only the strategy, development and delivery, but its living coral reef labs as well. So without further ado, here's our interview with Megan in full. Well, Megan, hello. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. How are you? Doing well. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to chat about some important topics. Me too. And thank you so much for making time ahead of, I'm presuming, Thanksgiving. (laughs) At a different Thanksgiving this year, but certainly a time to think about what we're grateful for. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I know that we've um, spoken before, but because I know it's your first time on the ED podcast, would you mind introducing the listeners to yourself? So telling us a bit about your career and your role in Remit at at Iberostar? Absolutely. Um, So uh, I actually am in, I I feel a little bit like an outsider, even though I've been in this uh, business for three years. So I actually came to Iberostar Group, which is a Spanish family-owned hotel and um, chain that has 120 properties in 19 countries around the world, and then 80% of them are coastal. So Mm -hmm. about three and a half years ago, the fourth generation leadership of this family-owned company wanted to find a way to really do something to help the oceans, commit to the oceans, and came over to Stanford, where I was finishing up my PhD in how we could help coral reefs uh, basically survive climate change better, Mm -hmm. and made the jump 
um, from academia and the sciences to sustainability. Now I'm the global director for sustainability at Iberostar Group, and it's been a, a really, uh, a really rewarding wild ride since that time. Mm-hmm. I think that's so interesting as well, like to be coastal and to actually hire someone that has that majorly scientific academic um, background. And I love hearing about it, everyone's career because there is really no one one single way into this into this space. Absolutely. I think that's a, a really great way of saying it, because if there's anything that I am realizing now, it's that we need more scientists in this space, more people who have uh, this kind of really data driven mindset that is based off of goals that are are ambitious enough to realize that you need many sectors to find the solutions. Mm-hmm. For sure. And we're speaking during Net Zero November and shortly after your company announced plans to become carbon neutral by 2030. So that's what I'm hoping to find out about today. So in order to get to that goal, what are are some of the first things that you'll be doing? What, What are your priorities? That's a great question because this is the biggest challenge for most companies now, right? Where to start, especially for the tourism sector that has been hit hardest in its history, practically, in, in, a, in a globalized world. Um, and I think in many ways, it was fortuitous that we had already been thinking about strategy for how to reach carbon neutrality prior to the pandemic hitting, but that when the pandemic came, it actually reinforced just how important it was to really think about resilient business models, resilient destinations, and what businesses can and need to be doing in order to make that a reality. So while it almost, for some, can feel like it's the furthest thing from the mind for businesses to be thinking about it, Iberostart was really obvious. So we started when we launched our what we're calling our long-term commitments to 2030 at the beginning of this year which is really just a precipitation and, and uh, putting it into quantifying time-bound goals of, of actions we've been working on for a number of years. But those goals have things like to be single-use plastics free in all of our operations by the end of this year, mm-hmm. um, which uh, or to be waste-free as in sending nothing to landfill by 2025. Um, and then these last you know, two goals, which are about reaching carbon neutrality by 2030 in all of our operations, and then um, also having ecosystems and improving ecological health. So protecting the nature that's around our properties alongside profitable tourism by 2030. And it was really those last two goals that went hand in hand that let us start to develop the strategy of how it is that we actually wanted to achieve carbon neutrality. So the first tenants that we wanted to say was one, how much carbon are we emitting in the first place? Um, and fortunately, we, uh, we've we been working with EarthCheck, which is a certification for hotels to be able to benchmark and, and use some standardized metrics for collecting information for a number of years. And with that, we knew what at least our scope one and scope two, according to the greenhouse gas protocol, um, global emissions mm-hmm. was for the company. And from this point, it's saying, all right, how do we make our operations more efficient? This is actually the prime time to do so because that efficiency comes along with better business in a time when you really need to buckle down everything that the business is doing currently. Um, How is it that we can promote our energy providers and our destinations to move towards renewables, the step that we could be doing across any of our transition to carbon neutrality? Um, But because we are a company that's following the greenhouse gas protocol, 
we also have these scope three emissions, or what does that mean? The products that we use, the amount of energy and carbon and greenhouse gases it took to produce the meat we consume, to produce the products we're using in the hotels. So we know that no matter what happens in 2030, we're almost certainly going to have a carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to need to figure out how to offset that carbon footprint in, in, in a way that is rigorous, scientifically based, but also then maybe can help us have some win-wins in our destinations. And so in combining those last two goals, we said, all right, well, why don't we say, and this is something that we just announced um, last this month, actually, um, it, why don't we say that uh, in, in our destination, 75% of that offsetting we'll have to do in 2030 should be by directly protecting and restoring nature in our destinations. Mm -hmm. And so this is really different than buying carbon credits, uh, that maybe are, if they even are based in nature, not in the country where, where your operations are located, but we depend on our locations for so many ecosystem services. So why not have that go back to those destinations? And so that's what we're planning to do. Yeah, when I was reading about the plans, it's clear how much that nature-based um, insetting is, is such a big um, part of that. And I know that you were working on coral reef projects and mangrove projects um, before this plan. So it's kind of a natural con continuation. Um, but what role in those plans? Will there be any external offsets? And what about reducing direct emissions di directly as well? Yeah, so you're kind of, um, it's it's amazing to me how much what we learned when we were little kids is really kind of the core tenet of how it is that we achieve a circular economy and, and curb climate change, which is like reduce, reuse, recycle, <laughs> right? Um, and so the, the first bit of what it is that we're doing in our strategy is, is to see how efficient we can become in that strategy. And, and, and then again, for any, any energy that we are using, how can it be switched to electric and how can that electric come from renewable mm -hmm. sources um, in and of themselves. And uh, actually, at the end of this year, we're going to be launching what we're basically calling our roadmaps for how it is that we plan to achieve these goals. This nature-based part is just a piece of, of this total component. So this roadmap for a circular economy will be basically how we plan to have restorative and regenerative systems in our built environments and the surrounding environments of the sourcing, efficiency, and end use of the water, energy, and products within our hotels. And within that, we'll descri describe, you know, our quantified time-bound targets for efficiency or our time-bound targets for uh, how much renewable energy we want to push for in any given sector. But what we knew from the beginning and what we knew would take equally, if not more, time is recognizing, okay, so if we're really going to do this in our destinations, how do we work with governments, with local NGOs to actually get new plots of land, start protecting existing mangrove forests that don't maybe have the protection that they need or the funding that they need to be protected? How do we start building the capacity to do restoration at actually now meaningful scales in our destination? So, and so this is where where this strategy has, has kind of been the horse before the cart, right, of, mm -hmm. of the actual longer roadmap. In terms of carbon credits, um, this is why we say 75%, because say if we are able to uh, find a way to get carbon credits for reducing food waste or find um, purchase carbon credits for helping our energy providers locally move towards renewable sources, we wanted that to only kind of fill a 25% bucket so that we right. really put a lot of it back into protecting nature and our destinations.
Yeah, and you talked about the one of the most important things when you start developing a strategy is having the baseline, which you already have. But something we're hearing a lot about is definition um, as well, and that there is a lot of climate jargon, even though it is a simple concept, as we as we talked about. Um, and Abirostar has chosen to go for carbon neutrality. Um, how does the business differentiate between that and, for example, net zero? Yeah, so this is a great question, and I'm curious on, you know, in, in thinking about this a lot, I, I find that there is a variety in some of these definitions where maybe a net zero is talking about in one's, so so that one's energy production is not producing, or energy consumption, rather, is not producing any greenhouse gases in the process um, itself. I think for us, because we are also including carbon that is coming from industries that it's going to take a while for them to be able to find the same sorts of solutions. Solutions, for example, for a tourism business. And while we, uh, our main business is not in, um, in in providing flights to clients, right, which would fall into the main offsetting needs of, of say, an, an airline provider, um, we also fly for our business. And we also um, have products that are a primary part of our service. And so we needed a way to be able to account for those products. The supply chains were complex enough that it was too challenging for us to say, well, all of those products just need to come from providers that are running off of renewable electrics. <laughs> and yeah. so this is why as well, um, we went for basically a net zero um, uh, calculation for neutrality, right? So if, if you could calculate how much carbon you estimate is used or greenhouse gases are released in order to produce those services, then you got to remove that from your operation in order to achieve, achieve this neutrality. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I know earlier you were talking about how far do you stop when it comes to things like food, for example. Do you know the carbon footprint of every piece of fish or steak that you're serving in a hotel? Yeah, absolutely. There's some really great tools that are out there that help businesses to be able to do this, like uh, World Resources Institute's Cool Food Pledge, which has been really focused on hotels to do a carbon footprint assessment of the food that you're eating. And I think this is another area where our Honest Food movement um, at Iberostar has helped us to think about products that are local, which also, again, gives back to these destinations, um, uh, but are also lower in, in, in red meat, right? So how do you have still a luxurious experience and your vacation where you want to indulge but do so in a way that can also have a low impact on on the environment we're in the process of doing so there's still quite a bit of a road to go but uh, but this is an area that will increasingly become more and more of a focus for us into the future the biggest place to start and again this is another reason why it just makes sense for businesses to be thinking about sustainability now is food waste mm-hmm. <laughs> the most expensive red meat that you have is the red meat you throw away. Um, and that's from a financial side, a carbon side, and a climate side. And, and so really getting a good handle handle on food waste is a great way to combat the climate while also getting very fast returns on investment for being able to, uh, to work towards sustainability goals. Mm-hmm. And food waste and sourcing is something we talked about quite a lot when we last spoke, and that was about the, the company's sort of wider ocean conservation strategy Um, and some of the big targets in that strategy are to do with engaging staff and visitors which is so important um, to the hospitality, leisure and tourism industries. So what learnings from that can you take to engage people with, with the new climate ambitions? 
Yeah, it's a great it's a great one. We 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 started as as you have also um, mentioned working on on coral reef restoration, which was not only kind of an area of expertise, but it's also just it's just really charismatic and easy to hook onto. It's like protecting corals, bringing corals, doing research on them. And it was something that was really easy to to be able to communicate and, and get people excited about. When we transitioned to now let's talk about mangroves. It's like, what's what is a mangrove? Can you <laughs> can you tell me what this is it a tree? <laughs> um and and so this has actually been one of the 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 themes that we've been working a lot on in, in the past couple of months is how how do we communicate the importance of this terrestrial really in the backyard ecosystem? Um and and we're excited we had a a, a really great job with our communications team and, and our brand team to help us develop some videos that were basically really representing the emotional side of this, where where we had um, some of our employees kind of speaking from first person, look, you know, I see and feel things are getting bad here. They're getting worse. The hurricanes are getting more intense and, and more frequent. And I think a solution could be if we work towards protecting the forest and protecting the mangroves. Did you know that they can actually hope to uh, capture 10 times more carbon than a terrestrial forest could um, because they're just these incredible sea trees. And and so that that communication and education piece to really make it linked to the location, to the ecosystem services and, and to the emotional side were one of the really exciting ways that we were thinking about engaging our, our employees and clients. Um, but per your kind of longer term question, the other thing that we realized was that less than five or 10 percent of our clients actually have uh, the, the ability to go diving and see some of the work that we're doing under the water. But anyone can plant a tree. Right. And so this was also another really great way for us to open a doorway for you to be able to go on vacation and experience what it is to invest in that destination by helping us to plant more trees in the area. And this is one of the reasons why this nature-based blue carbon offset program is intended to be one of our, our, our biggest opportunities to interact with clients so that eventually they can come and plant a tree um, in, in one of our facilities and help us to reach these goals. So it's top tips there from what I can gather are, so keep, keep it local. Um, make it interactive and engage the emotional side of things as well. Absolutely. Uh, not everything is as charismatic as a coral reef is, but that doesn't mean that they're not as important to be able to uh, to work on ways that we can and give shed light on how important this nature is to help keep these businesses function, keep these communities functioning. Um, and then ultimately, it, it's about human health, right? It's about uh, the health and resilience of of how our relationship with nature can 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 sustain us into the future. And that's an absolutely massive topic and one that I'm sure that everyone will be thinking um, about at the moment. But just as we come to the end of our discussion, I wanted to bring it back down to a more personal um, level for yourself. So for everyone that comes on this podcast for November, um, we're asking sort of how their career has been impacted by not only COVID, but the climate activism that before this pandemic was the defining moment. The thing that was at the top of the headlines all the time was um, was the school strikes. Um, was the protest. So what has it been like to be a sustainability professional um, against that background? How has it changed what you do in your day to day? 
It's a great question. Uh, it's it's been a I think a really challenging time for everyone in the world in some way or another. And in, in in this odd year of 2020, I think the first uh, reflection is how fortunate I've been to work with Iberostar and with the Flusha family, who have immediately from the beginning seen sustainability as as a non-negotiable during this time when everyone is needing to figure out what are the important and core tenets of the businesses to keep alive um, um, through through one of the most economically challenging times. Um, and so that, that has provided a platform to be able to remain constant um, throughout. And one of the, the stark differences that I would say that we see now is a very clear forking path in the road. One where with limited resources, with a great reset, right, um, businesses have a choice to choose to, and in some cases, not only just return to business as normal, but sometimes business has a little bit worse, right? Whether it's bringing in more single-use products or or finding ways to to make up uh, means that are lost in the interim, this this path of, of trying to find a way to survive um, can look in many ways and many ways that are not really great for the environment. But on the other side of the forking path is to really think about, can this be a great reset to build a more resilient business model, to integrate nature, to integrate uh, destinations and help them to solve basically what are, are our contributions to global sustainability development goals and, and accelerate this to speeds that we have never ever experienced before in terms of these sorts of solutions and, and how do we do that using all of the ingenuity in, of, of the company to be able to do so and that second path is really what I've just seen and been so inspired by by all forms of leadership in Iberostar whether it be in the midst of all of this our our executive leadership thinking really hard about how do we care for our employees how do we make sure that they can continue um, their livelihoods as part of this Iberostar family but at the same time also sitting down and saying and how do we tackle efficiency and energy? How do we tackle renewables? How do we tackle waste management? Um, because we also see the importance of, of all of these components at the same time. We were with the executive committee when we were running through this nature-based blue carbon offset announcement, and it gets pretty technical and weedy, and they're sitting there going, can you please explain to me why a mangrove could potentially be 10 times more efficient at capturing carbon than a terrestrial forest? And we got into the biology of everything, and, and, they, and they really kind of understood that this was the path forward. And so to me, this forking path and a decision to really take a step to build back a more resilient business is what I see for sustainability now. The, 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 the call is there. Now it's time for action. And it's a suite of micro decisions that need to be made every day to divert businesses towards that other side of the forking path that I think is needed in order to achieve that. Great. Well, I think that's a fantastic note to end this discussion on, Megan, but thank you so much for sparing your time and letting us know your insights on this topic. No, thank you so much. So thanks again to Megan from Iberostar there, and Edie will be keeping a close eye on the company's next sustainability announcements in 2021 and beyond. Of course, the net zero movement has been gathering pace far beyond the walls of Edie and of Iberostar. So with that in mind, it's time for our net zero news in brief. Over the past week, there have been some pretty big developments in the net zero conversation, as usual, even amid the backdrop of COVID-19. And I'm going to pull out the top three stories for you now. Firstly, I have to mention that the Treasury has finally published the National Infrastructure Strategy, 
which everyone in the UK's green economy has been waiting for since March. The strategy confirms 100 billion of investment in infrastructure in the next financial year and 12 billion for net zero activities specifically. But it's still not clear how much of that 12 billion overlaps with other previous announcements and what climate standards the broader package might be held to. Chancellor Rishi Sunak also announced a national investment bank with net zero as a key remit. On the business side of things, Vodafone has set a 2040 net zero target for its global operations. It has also set a 2030 ambition to halve emissions from key scope 3 sources, a target approved by the SBTI. Vodafone's climate efforts to date have centred around renewable electricity and energy efficiency as part of its work with FM firm Mighty. And last but not least, both Diageo and Japan Tobacco International, which owns recognisable brands like Benson and Hedges and Camel, have committed to net zero operations within a decade. Both businesses are prioritising in-house reductions over offsetting very heavily. And you can find more information on both of these announcements on ed.net. Before I sign off for this episode, I'd like to take a brief moment to thank our headline sponsor for Net Zero November and Net Zero Live, EDF, as well as everyone who came along and spoke at Net Zero Live and was interviewed for Net Zero November. And of course, to all of you at home for reading, listening, watching and attending. We may be coming to the end of the month, but if your organisation has a Net Zero story, we still want to hear about it. Please email me at newsdesk at fav house Com. As for the podcast, the rest of the team is going to return with our usual sustainable business covered podcast format in December for a special festive episode. Please do subscribe to and follow the ED podcast portfolio on SoundCloud, iTunes or Spotify. Wherever you get your podcasts, we're there. And for more Net Zero news, the ED website and newsletter will be your go to. But we're about out of time for this episode. So until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>